time, accuracy, and money. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs, with Patrick Wells on the back end production. This is the show where we work to bridge literacy research into practice, and we are very glad to have you with us for this episode. If this is your first time and you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you receive the content that will help others find the show. If this isn't your first episode, you've been around a while, we'd appreciate if you share this episode with a friend or colleague that you feel may benefit. One announcement before we get to the episode, the entire back catalog of Teaching Literacy Podcast is now available on YouTube. Cheers and hoorays. I know there are a lot of university instructors assigning Teaching Literacy Podcast episodes to courses. This should help make it easier to directly embed the episode into your course, whether it's Canvas, Blackboard, whatever LMS you're using. Another great benefit is that YouTube also provides generated closed captions, which is really important to help make the podcast more accessible for everyone. And just in general, folks are consuming a lot of podcast content on YouTube these days. The YouTube channel for Teaching Literacy Podcast actually started when I began the podcast, but it's been pretty hit and miss after those first few episodes, but not anymore. Everything's there. I'll continue to upload new episodes within a day or two of when they post onto YouTube. So if you consume podcast content via YouTube, you might want to check that out. And it's also a great way to send an easy link to someone else. To find it on YouTube, just search Teaching Literacy Podcast and it will pull right up. Let's get to today's episode. In this episode, we are talking about assessments, how much they cost, how much time they take, and how accurate they actually are. I have two guests who partnered with a school to investigate these questions. Their names are Dr. Courtney Barrett and Dr. Adria Truckenmiller. Dr. Barrett is an assistant professor in the school psychology program at Michigan State University. Dr. Adria Truckenmiller is an associate professor in the special education program also at Michigan State University. And today we are discussing their recent article entitled Comparing the Cost-Accuracy Ratios of Multiple Approaches to Reading, Screening, and Elementary Schools. Essentially, what Dr. Barrett and Dr. Truckemeller did was they worked with a school that was using three assessments systematically, and this was with third grade. They looked at the STAR assessment, the Acadiance assessment, and the Fountas and Pinnell benchmark assessment system, and they worked with the school to figure out, A, which assessment or combination of assessments would best predict outcomes on the end-of-year state assessment, B, what specific cutoff of those scores would best predict passing on that state end-of-year assessment, and see how much in dollars, cents, and times each of these assessments cost to implement. So this is extremely pragmatic. This is real life for schools everywhere. There's lots to unpack in this episode, and we cover a lot of ground. So sit back, enjoy the episode, and after it's done, make sure to stick around for Jake's take on the topic. Dr. Courtney Barrett and Dr. Adria Truckenmiller, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello, we're Thank delighted you. to be here. Yes, delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having us. 
I think listeners, no matter their context, will find what we're talking about very informative and valuable, whether we're talking classroom teacher, principal, school district administration folks, higher ed folks. There's a lot that we're going to unpack today. Before we get into it, will you both just give us a brief overview of your background and how you became interested in investigating reading assessment? Yeah, great. I'll start. Adria Truckenmiller here, currently at Michigan State University research a new writing assessment that is based on writing curriculum-based measurement, expanding it into informational writing in response to reading a passage. I'm really interested in giving teachers actionable instructional recommendations based on where their students are in development. We know students vary hugely when they come into the classroom. For example, I'm working with fourth and fifth graders right now, and so there are classrooms of fourth and fifth grade students range widely from students who are writing a beautiful essay with uh, a beautiful introduction and conclusion and all the parts of it to students who are still learning how to write their letters. That's a pretty big range to decide what to do with uh, your next steps in instruction. That's more fine-grained assessment, but prior to coming to Michigan State in 2016, I was at the Florida Center for Reading Research, and I was working on Dr. Barbara Foreman's grants She had several grants, one from the Big Reading for Understanding initiative that was conducted by the Institute of Education Sciences, and she had another one that was a typical measurement grant from the Institute of Education Sciences. And I directed the development of those projects where we created reading screening and writing items for grades K through 12, and we created a uh, reading screener that evaluated decoding as well as vocabulary, some syntax types of things and reading comprehension uh, across all of those grade levels. So that was a really cool experience. I got to travel around the state of Florida, training all of the 67 counties and how to use the reading screener and then also some writing pieces to inform their instruction and select specifically who needed additional supports in reading. So that really was a very invaluable experience. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Barrett. Thanks, Adria. Yeah. So Adria described how much expertise she brings in the literacy area to the study. And I brought kind of my interest in economic evaluation and how I became interested in that. I'm a school psychologist by training. A few years ago, though, I was a practitioner at a regional education service agency. And that was what got me really interested in kind of this idea of resource allocation and implementation. So the regional education service agency that I worked for served 12 different districts, and they were extremely diverse. So urban districts, rural districts, really big ones, really kind of smaller ones. And it was fascinating to me how everybody approached reading assessment and instruction really differently. And I began to wonder, is there a better way to do this? Sometimes our initiatives might be redundant. You know, what's the kind of the most efficient way of serving our students? So that was when I got really interested in this idea of economic evaluation, which is like the formal methodology for understanding the costs that are associated with different programs or practices or initiatives that we have in schools. So that was the beginning of that kind of research area for me. This is my fifth year here at Michigan State University. So I've been kind of conducting um, this type of research a little bit more formally, but really building off of my experience as a practitioner. So both of you bring a plethora of knowledge and experience uh, to bear in this study, but I also appreciate the different domains that you're bringing 
expertise from with Dr. Truck and Miller being more of the literacy and reading side, and then Dr. Barrett providing the school psychology side. And I think what really stuck out to me when I read this was how much those two interplayed to make it for a really interesting, strong study that I, I think folks will find valuable. So the study we're talking about today was published in the Journal of Remedial and Special Education, and it was entitled Comparing the Cost-Accuracy Ratios of Multiple Approaches to Reading Screening in Elementary Schools. And your co-authors was Lindy J. Johnson and Amanda Vander Hayden. And before we get too much into the study, I want to just talk some terminology and different types of reading screeners to provide some context. First, let's start with, can you define what a reading screener is and just provide some details on how screeners are typically used in schools? Yeah, sure. So reading screeners, they're brief assessments intended to identify students who are at risk for a poor outcome. And typically, we think of that poor outcome as not passing the state assessment. We want to identify students early on so that we have enough time to intervene to help them improve their reading skills and prevent them from having or experiencing this poor outcome. So oftentimes in schools, these screeners will be administered three times per year. So once in the fall, once in the winter, and once in the spring. And these brief assessments, they help us monitor student progress and growth over the course of the year. But again, we really want to highlight that the important thing is that make sure that we are reaching out to students and supporting students who aren't experiencing success or who might be at risk for this poor outcome or who might not be learning at the same rate as their peers. And there are lots of different kind of specific types of reading screeners that Adria can talk about. So then with screeners, what you're saying is that we're providing a short, brief assessment several times a year in the hopes of that we can see what a student's broad needs are and be able to intervene so that they can be successful on you know, a future end-of-year more high stakes, state level type assessment. So there's different ways uh, that schools approach this. There's three major types that you talk about in your article. The first one being curriculum-based assessment, computer adaptive assessments, and then informal reading inventories. Can you describe each of these for us and then highlight any key differences or considerations uh, among those three types of reading assessments? Uh, I'll be happy to do that. And before I, I do that, I should say, um, to kind of categorize all of the screeners that are out there and practices that schools do um, was quite a big process all on its own. And so I want to acknowledge Lindy Johnson, our co-author on this, and also the school that we partnered with. As you noted earlier, having the multiple expertise between Courtney and I, but then also what was absolutely critical for this was the practitioner voice and the educator teacher's voice. So this school was really incredible to work with. They've been doing really cool things with their students for a very long time. And Lindy, the uh, doctoral student um, who's working on this, pulled together a lot of information and we all thought about together where each of these assessments came from and why this particular school was using all three of them. So to back up, curriculum-based measurement, or CBM, as it's often called, this is usually in third grade, which is the grade we looked at, is a passage that the student reads aloud for one minute. And usually we give three of those during a screening to get a more accurate idea of what their oral reading fluency is. 
curriculum-based measurements also have other types of assessment at earlier grades. So you'll often see nonsense word fluency, phoneme segmentation fluency, letter sound fluency, things like that. They're all similar in that they're very brief, about a minute, and usually three of those are given. What's really magical about curriculum-based measurement is the oral reading fluency is a really good sign of a student's reading comprehension, especially in those early grades. Um, and so curriculum-based measurement came out of the field of special education, which is uh, the area that I'm in right now. It came out of really wanting to monitor students with disabilities very closely to make sure that progress was being made and really big progress was being made so that we could begin closing the gap between grade level skills and where students with individualized education plans start out at. It was then used later as uh, reading screeners and has become very popular. There's many organizations, many vendors that have systems of curriculum-based measurement. Dibbles is a curriculum-based measure and you can grab those probes for free on most places, but then to log them to keep track of a whole school, their services are very helpful for that that you can purchase. Uh, so that's curriculum-based measurement. Computer adaptive assessment this is where I was talking about I have experience in creating these and I understood them so much better after being on that side of things when I was at the Florida Center for Reading Research working on Barbara Foreman's computer adaptive assessment. So what these are is, of course, it's administered via the computer and provide questions or items to students based on their ability. So it goes a little bit faster. It's briefer than some of our individually administered assessments because it will give students harder items if they're doing well or easier items if they need easier items. And then it comes up with a pretty accurate estimate of their abilities. These, when we thought about the history of computer adaptive assessment, something like the NWEA is really strong and has very strong psychometric properties, especially for the later grade levels, middle school, upper elementary. They were designed to, as accurately as possible, look like the statewide expectations, like the Common Core that many states have adopted. So. That came from that area, and one of the weaknesses we kind of see is it's trying to scale down to the younger grade levels, K1 and 2. It has been not as strong as some other assessments, because I think maybe it was developed for those later grade levels. And then finally, the third type is informal reading inventories. These are assessments like the Fountas and Pinnell benchmark assessment system, which we evaluated in this study. When I was wandering around schools in different states prior to going to FCRR, actually. There's a lot of schools using the developmental reading assessment, the DRA is also another common reading inventory, and many people have their own informal inventories that they'll use. These came out of good practice for teaching. A lot of teacher preparation programs teach their teachers this as standard practice for formative assessment within the classroom. So. You want to, as a teacher, we want to understand how our students are thinking about reading, how they're thinking about reading comprehension questions. So in these, typically, I should back up and say what they look like. A student will be given a short, very short, leveled book. So books ranging from easier to harder text. 
and the teacher will listen to the child read that book. They will mark cues, so any words that the child uh, mispronounces or misreads, and they will code them. And then they will get their reading fluency from that as well. And they will ask some questions of the student about their comprehension of the text. Those teachers are really more fine-grained information about how their students respond to reading comprehension questions. So those are the three in a nutshell and kind of broadly what they do. So curriculum-based assessment, we're thinking short, assessing specific perhaps subtypes of reading using you know fluency, accuracy, nonsense word reading fluency, computer adaptive assessments uh, being administered via computer and students get easier or harder questions based on their response. And uh, it sounds like computer adaptive assessments tend to be a bit more reliable for older grades than younger grades. And then informal reading inventories um, attempting to do everything in the sense of looking at fluency and comprehension, all sort of in the same packaging. Is that a, a an accurate 10-second recap of those three types of assessments? That is an impressive recap of that. I appreciate that. And I should revise or add to the computer adaptive assessment. There are many, many, many different types of computer adaptive assessments out there. So while the most popular ones, like the one used in this study is the STAR, the one I mentioned, the NWEA, those both measure reading comprehension broadly or reading achievement broadly. They may incorporate some items that have vocabulary involved. They may incorporate some other areas of reading as well. But I should mention, particularly the computer adaptive assessment that we worked on at Florida Center for Reading Research, did measure other components of reading. So we did a word reading, so that's decoding. We did a spelling, encoding. We had one on vocabulary. We had one on sentence comprehension. Um, we have one on syntax. And we were able to use those in earlier grade levels, kindergarten, first, second grade. And then we started to expand down to pre-K and ran out of funding. <laughs> <laughs> So that's an impressive array that those assessments can really tackle. We're going to dig into the psychometrics of reading screeners for just a minute. And I hope I hope for this, we are going to go a little bit in the weeds, but I hope the listeners stick with us because these are terms that I think are really important. And the terms I want to talk about are specificity and sensitivity. What do those terms mean and why should regular school practitioners care about those terms? This is the question I ask myself every day. Why should we care about these? And I took a deep dive into sensitivity, specificity, and there's other classification accuracy statistics that we won't go into. Negative predictive power, positive predictive power, post-test probabilities, there's all kinds of things. When I first dove into these, Chris Schott-Snyder, who is working with at Florida Center for Reading Research, said, welcome to the seventh circle of hell. So we will try to not take everybody else into the seventh circle of hell with us because um, Courtney and I and then Amanda Vander Hayden, thank goodness she joined our team. She reviewed every single one of our numbers for us, which is really tough as well. So, okay, what are these things, sensitivity and specificity? All assessments, screening assessments, assessments of anything really, have error associated with them. So we're not going to ever be 100% accurate 100% of the time. 
but we can identify how likely we are to be right. So there are two ways to be right on a screener, and there's two ways to be wrong on a screener. We can have a true positive where we predicted they would be proficient and then they were, or we predicted that they were below proficient and then they were. And then the ways that we can be wrong are that we predicted they would be proficient and then they weren't, or we predicted that they weren't proficient and then they were. Okay, so that creates four groups of kids. We have a whole bunch of kids that we got it right and they were proficient, a whole bunch of kids we got it right and that they weren't going to be proficient. But what about those kids that were wrong? So we want to identify who's most likely to be a true risk. So these students who are likely to not be proficient and that's represented by a formula called sensitivity. So this is the number of true positives out of all of the students. Then we want to identify the numbers that are truly proficient. This is specificity and specificity is calculated by the number of true negatives out of all of those students who are going to be proficient on the state test. These are two numbers where we're trying to either get at being correct as in true risk or being correct as in true proficiency. So true risk is sensitivity, true proficiency is specificity. What's interesting with the statistics is that if you try to maximize how many kids you're catching, so who are gonna be truly at risk, you end up decreasing specificity. But if you want to value more reducing the number of false positives, you would want to increase specificity. So that's increasing the amount of true proficiency. And you get this push and pull between sensitivity and specificity. And so when we're choosing a cut point for the reading screener, and vendors actually choose a cut point for the reading screener, what they're doing is trying to balance the sensitivity and specificity. Sometimes you can also try to increase one versus the other. And so in reading screening, often schools want to make sure we catch all the students we possibly can. So we want to reduce the number of false negatives, meaning that we want to make sure we catch as many students as possible and we're more okay with having some false positives in there in that case. And so when we do that, what we want to increase is the sensitivity. And so in our paper, we look very closely at the sensitivity number because this is trying to make sure we're maximizing the number of kids who are truly at risk while also taking a little bit of a gamble on some false positives that we might get. And this is why assessment really, really matters that what we're assessing, what we purport to be assessing, we are actually assessing, which is more in the validity realm, which we didn't discuss. But I always think of when we're thinking of reading assessment schools as we're casting a net and thinking about, do I want to cast a wider net on the positive side? And maybe there's more students that the assessment says are quote unquote in the clear, but they're actually not. Or do I want to cast a wider net more on the false negative side that I'm going to 
have a higher chance of catching all the kids that really need support, but there might be some kids in there that actually don't need the level of support that's indicated, you know, in the screener. And they both have trade-offs that if I capture too many on the false negative side, then that can begin to tax and burden the RTI system at a school because you're taking on more students for support than what's really needed. But on the false positive side, it might be a more efficient approach, but then students who would really benefit from support aren't receiving that. And so for most teachers, I don't think that's that. I mean, I'm not a test developer. Most folks listening to this aren't a test developer, but it is really important to understand how specific and sensitive the assessments that are being used are so that way you can be able to provide the students the levels of support that they need. And I think that's what this study really offers. A really important part is looking at the specificity and the sensitivity of these assessments. Wow, that was a really good overview. Thank you, Jake, for summarizing that so well. Typically, schools don't just pick one of these. We're just a curriculum-based assessment school, or we're just a computer adaptive school. They're going to administer multiple types of assessments to students. So this is called multivariate screening. Why do schools do this? What's the rationale behind using multiple screening administrations? And are there trade-offs of using more than one assessment to identify students at risk versus just one type of assessment? Yeah, I think you pointed this out earlier, or you alluded to this earlier, Jake, when you were talking about what each type measures. And what I think potentially is happening is, as I talked about, these inventories are often used as standard practice in schools. So many teachers already are collecting this type of information. They have this information available to them. And then when they're told to make decisions, if in a grade team meeting or a school-wide team meeting to make decisions about who needs intervention, like a screening decision, for example, they might be thinking about this information and using that information, either explicitly using it or implicitly thinking about it. And so a lot of schools, they might have implemented something, one of those computer adaptive assessments as part of a policy. So they're mandated to use one of those systems. And then often there's not a whole lot of interpretation training available for something like a computer adaptive assessment because it was used for other purposes. And also you get an overall reading score. And while that's useful for some educators in the school think like an administrator, a overall reading score is very useful for an administrator, but for a teacher who needs to know, what do I teach the next day in class? That computer adaptive assessment might not be very useful. And so the teachers may advocate for administering other things or using other data that they already have, like their reading inventory. And then CBM came along as a really quick, easy, potentially much faster way to identify who needs intervention and provides a little bit more information. So it's kind of somewhere in the middle where it provides a little bit more information about how a child is decoding, which might be missing from some of their reading screeners. So for example, this school, the STAR, doesn't measure decoding directly. And so using a CVM would fill in that piece of information. And it's pretty accurate in terms of its classification accuracy, its sensitivity specificity in predicting 
later use. So I think they're getting different pieces of information from each of them. And I do think schools intuitively know that there is some error and there's some kids who would fall through the cracks if they only used one of those assessments based on what you said, what you summarized earlier, Jake, that, you know, they measure different components of reading. And we know that students have difficulties in different areas of reading that may not be picked up on by different assessments. I think that was one of the reasons why this study uh, stuck out to me was previous to this position, I was a literacy coordinator uh, at a school district and multivariate screening was something that was something that I wrangled with quite a bit. The the state required that we had a CBM that we administered K3 and then we also did it 4-6 and we'd actually as a district had use that assessment long before it was required by the state. But then we also had from our ELA curriculum that there was a computer adaptive assessment that they offered. And then we also used a more of a reading diagnostic from like a phonics diagnostic from the core consortium. And then there was like kindergarten had an intake and exit, you know, exam that was required from the state. And so we had this constellation of assessments And trying to make it fit all together and determine, you know, what assessment was yielding which type of data and in what ways was it actionable. And then we had this whole host of even like curriculum level assessment from our tier one and our tier two curricula that, you know, being able to really prioritize which data is the data that we need to be being responsive to in this realm and to what degree and in this realm to what degree. And I think that's what a lot of schools, that's the reality for a lot of schools and for a lot of districts is there is this constellation of assessments and some of it is required. Some of it is offered through a curriculum vendor and it's going to have varying levels of sensitivity and specificity and validity. And they're going to tell you different things. And a large part of being responsive is understanding the type of data you're receiving so that you can be actionable about it. And I think this will probably be a great point to transition to the school context, because the school that you did the study with, they were using multivariate screening, and they were using all three of these types of of screeners. So talk about the development of the study, what drove the development of the study with the school, and then give us just some background and context about the school so we understand where the study's coming from. Yeah, sure. The The development of the study was, it was quite serendipitous, I think. So this is something that Adrian and I had been talking about for a while because of, you know, partnering with schools who are in the same situation like you were just talking about. There are so many different pieces of data. How do we integrate them? How do we interpret them? You know, what actions do we take after we get them? And then this piece of kind of efficiency that a lot of times assessments, they can take a really long time and it can be tough for teachers. It can be tough for students to just have these days or even weeks maybe where you're really focused on assessment and and schools wondering and us wondering, is it really worth that trade-off, that time that we're spent assessing? Are we getting good enough data? Are we getting kind of redundant sources of data? That kind of piece. And so this is something that, yeah, Adrienne and I had been talking for a while and then her incoming doctoral student, Lindy, had previously worked at a school and, and this was something that they were grappling with. And so the stars aligned and we partnered on this project. And it was really amazing. I think this is just a really cool 
example of how kind of research and practice can partner together because they had questions, but maybe didn't necessarily know how to go about answering those questions. Adrian and I could answer the questions, you know, we had that kind of training to, to actually conduct the analyses and then to be able to partner to really inform their decision making. And they did after the results of the study, they actually did change their reading practices based on our results, which is amazing to me. That's kind of like the example of how research and practice can really partner together. So yeah, that was how this all came about. And and so the research questions were really looking at this idea of a cut score. So like you both were talking about, that sensitivity and specificity, they're kind of a trade-off and they're a little bit dependent upon where we're placing the cut score. And like Adria mentioned earlier, those cut scores are initially developed or kind of set by the vendor. And so schools, maybe they don't even know this sometimes too, but they can actually determine a cut score that's like most optimal for their specific context. And so that was our first question was like, maybe all these assessments are okay, but maybe it's just if we have to shift the cut score a little bit, maybe we can get better results with not even really doing that much different. So that was our first question. And then the second question was like, well, let's use that optimal cut score to get like the most bang for our buck in each individual assessment and then say, what's the cost though? What are the trade-offs? What are the resources that we actually need to administer the assessments that we have. And so a lot of times, as anybody who's worked in a school knows, that time is often the biggest is often the biggest resource. That a lot of times a program or a practice, they'll say like, oh, this is going to take 15 minutes. And everybody knows like that me- really means like 30 to 45 minutes, you know. And so we w- really, it's so important to kind of honor that, to capture those costs. So that's what we tried to do. We tried to use a really rigorous methodology to, to say from the most comprehensive kind of standpoint, what are all the resources that we're using to administer each individual assessment? Are those, all those assessments useful in giving us data that's actionable? And, and again, what's the optimal cut score to make any kind of individual assessment or combination of assessments the most accurate for our decision making? I love the example of what a research practitioner partnership can look like in that it's not a one-way street, that it should be very reciprocal and being able to both parties bring something to the table that, you know, that can promote something really interesting. Briefly, just describe to us what were the research questions that you were interested in investigating? So the first research question, the answers were, what were the best cut scores for each assessment in this particular study? And did the CART analysis identify homogenous groups of students with specific instructional implications? And then our second research question was, what were the costs and cost accuracy ratios associated with four approaches to reading screening assessments? Really, you're looking at, okay, using these assessments, what's the best cut score? How specific and sensitive are these assessments? And then I love that you also looked at the actual costs, like the dollars and cents that it took to implement all of these. You used an approach called a CART analysis, and we'll also try to stay a little too far out of the weeds on this one. What is a CART analysis, and how did that help you with this analysis? Yeah, that's a great question to ask to find it succinctly. So the neat thing about partnering with this school is I was super impressed by how they took all of these multiple data points and tried to weigh each of them. The grade teams would get together and they would look at all three sources of data. So teachers would look at their classroom and see, okay, I have Stanley who scored in the at-risk range on the STAR, not at risk on the Acadia or the CBM and at risk on the Foundation Pinnell benchmark assessment system. 
And then they would make a judgment. What does that mean about this student? So they were actually using three pieces of information and then making a final decision based on teacher judgment. So they're using a multivariate and multiple variables approach. They're trying to weigh to the best of their ability each of these measures. And so they wanted to know, okay, what parts of our system, how should we weigh those things? And I, like Courtney said, her and I both have the same question too. How are you weighing these? Because you do want to weigh that information and know how to weigh it. And so the classification and regression tree analysis is what I ran, CART. What it can do is it can provide cut scores on multiple different screeners. So for example, in our study, we found a certain cut score on the STAR combined with a certain cut score on the Acadians. And that combined, that would increase the accuracy of the screening approach. And so CART could determine the cut points on both of those, or if other measures ended up contributing to accuracy, it would provide the cut score on that one as well. And then it also can identify subgroups in the data. It clusters students by how similar they are to each other. And so it could potentially identify instructionally useful subgroups, which our school was very interested in as we were as well. So that was our unique approach. And then there's another unique approach that we had to wrestle with, but Courtney will probably talk about that later. The key benefits of the CART analysis being that it can not only give you the optimal cut score for the different assessments, but also that it will cluster subgroups, which there's always something to say for a shinier, newer model of statistics that's able to do more things than just what like a logistic regression would do. So how was the sensitivity and specificity of the, the screeners in this context? How many false negatives and false positives did they each capture? Yeah, I'll definitely be happy to answer that question. For our purposes and for a school's purpose, the CART is the most useful because it it lets them know, to Courtney's point about our research question, what is the optimal cut point for the school? Because maybe we could find one that's better for that particular school than the vendors. So when we ran sensitivity and specificity, we did find that there was a lot of error. There were more false negatives than the school wanted. And they wouldn't have had that hard data had we not just put the numbers into the four buckets and found out which of their third graders were false negatives, false positives, true positives, true negatives. And so the sensitivity was not as high as what the vendors had gotten in their study. That was the first thing we found. Then the second thing that we found is that we did in fact get the highest level of sensitivity when using multiple screening scores. So just like the teachers thought and the school thought, hey, we're administering multiple things so we catch more kids. Yeah, they can actually catch more kids if they use more than one assessment. What was really cool about CART is it was able to sort through all of the noise and find the signal. And so the cart in this case sifted through all of the scores that we threw into it. I threw in the BAS, the benchmark assessment system level score. I threw in the 
Acadiance, oral reading fluency, Acadiance accuracy, Acadiance retail, Acadiance maze score, and I threw in the star scaled score. And so when I threw all those numbers in, the cart sifted through the noise and then came out with cut scores that maximized sensitivity. And so our only score that reached a sensitivity level that we were really happy with, and we defined sensitivity that we were really happy with as being above 90%. So meaning we were catching 90% of the kids who were going to not be proficient on the state test was this CART analysis that identified the Acadiance oral reading fluency score and the STAR score and different cut points on those than what the vendor had recommended based on their overall analysis. What you're saying is that when used in conjunction using the Acadiance or the curriculum-based measure with the STAR, which was the computer adaptive, that seemed to be the best combination to identify 90% or more of the students that needed additional support. Yeah, that was the thing that was the highest sensitivity and reached the level that we were happy with. And I should make another point that we thought was really interesting and that schools might be interested in was the CART identified within Acadiance. So within the CBM, you get a whole bunch of different metrics and Acadiance had recommended that schools use a composite score for their screener. So a composite score integrating accuracy, fluency, retail, and maze in third grade. But we found that the retail, maze, and accuracy scores were all part of that noise. And really the only signal that was giving you the most that you needed was the oral reading fluency metric itself. So it's been interesting talking to others who say, yeah, that matches what we know from other studies. I should say that the STAR score and the oral reading fluency from the Acadiance score together also match other studies that suggest that, hey, the STAR is picking up these kids who are likely to have reading comprehension, difficulties, maybe reading comprehension difficulties and decoding difficulties, but they're missing some of the kids who probably have some decoding difficulties, which the oral reading fluency metric is picking up. So this is like the specific subgroup that the cart was intended to pick up. It did in fact pick that up. So I think that's a really interesting point that, you know, most folks who are familiar with Acadiance or with Dibbles 8, that there's this way to composite across all the submeasures. But you, in fact, found that it was the ORF submeasure that was the best predictor of whether students needed additional support or not. I'm curious, in the STAR reading, how, how close was your CART-derived cutoff score compared to what the publisher-derived cut score was? Yeah, that's a great question. So the publisher derived cut score was 323 and the one that we came up with for this particular school was 345. So it's not far off. I don't have off the top of my head the standard deviation of that scaled score, so I can't tell you like the effect size of how how big that is, but it's it's not terribly far off. Yeah, in the ballpark, but You know, if we're talking across a school or across multiple schools, there can be dozens of students that can be within that narrow 20-point range the more it scales. And then the CART-derived ORF, just so folks know that what you found was 81 words correct per minute was what in this context was determined as the best cutoff. So looking at 
Students that have an ORF of 81 or higher and a star score of 345 or higher being, we have a lot of reason to feel confident they are going to do well on an end of state assessment in this context. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point for the star by changing that cut score on the scaled score, we captured 12% more students. And then for the ORF score of 81, by using that instead of the composite score, we actually captured 30% more kids. That's how much the, the sensitivity increased. And again, that 81 cut point is specific to this school with their rates of proficiency on the state assessment. And so other schools that use a different state assessment or have different levels of proficiency on that state assessment might have a different cut score. So let's start talking about cost. When we talk about cost, we do mean money, but it's a little bit more than just the actual dollars and cents spent on an assessment. Can you describe what you're referring to when you talk about cost and how did the costs of these screeners vary and what types of raw materials were required to implement these screeners and how are they similar or different across the different assessments? Yeah, so that's interesting. A lot of schools are willing to spend the money when it's something that's worthwhile, which is very commendable. But then when you're thinking about assessment, often the first pushback anybody gets is, oh, wow, we're adding another assessment that's taking time away from instruction. And of course, the most important thing we want to do is maximize the amount of instruction because we only have six hours a day and we can't get it all in already in six hours a day. So that's really important. We wanted to think about a way that we could capture time that's spent in assessment in one metric. And that was really challenging. The way this was done was capturing the number of minutes spent by the teacher in not just administering the assessment, but also scoring the assessments. So that is a particularly costly thing in terms of minutes. The methodology I am super impressed by, so I'll pass it to Courtney to talk about that. Yeah, that's a great question, Jake. In economic evaluations, and an economic evaluation is sort of an umbrella term for cost analyses, cost effectiveness analyses, benefit cost analyses, we use the term cost accuracy to kind of emphasize that screeners aren't necessarily effective. They're not changing kind of student outcomes per se. They can be accurate, though. So anyway, this umbrella term of kind of economic evaluation is founded on this idea of opportunity costs. And so it's this idea that when we do one thing, we're sort of losing out on the opportunity to another thing. And that lost opportunity comes with a cost. So in this case, when we're assessing students or administering our reading series, we might be losing out on the opportunity to provide intervention or instruction. And so we want to kind of make sure that we're capturing that kind of cost or that resource. This study, much like most economic evaluations conducted in education, the biggest resource that we use in schools is time. So educators' time and students' time, it's a pretty low percentage of the costs that are related to actual like money or dollars or kind of out-of-pocket costs. The majority of costs are related to time. And so research has estimated that for any sort of education initiative, that it's going to be ranging from like 70 to 90% of the costs are really just for people's time. 
So that's usually the biggest kind of cost category that exists out there. And then the other things that typically are included in educational kind of initiatives are materials. So things like printouts or or manuals or books or workbooks, equipment, things like tablets or kind of computers or technology. Those are kind of our biggest pieces. And when we think about time too, we want to capture all the time that's needed to actually implement something or administer a screener. So that's time for training, time to actually implement it or administer it, time to maybe progress monitor and have somebody provide feedback maybe to teachers on how they're administering the assessment to ensure that they're using the standardized procedures. So a lot goes into actually administering them. What we did was we actually met with the the school leaders who knew a lot about exactly how they were administering all these screeners. So how they were training teachers to administer them, how long it took to administer the screener, to transition to administering the screener, you know, how long it took to score everything, how long it took to actually get together that interpret it. So we met with the school leaders to get a really comprehensive view about all the resources that were needed. So when we calculated all of that up, the benchmark assessment system was by far the most expensive. And this kind of makes sense because each individual administration for one student is administered like one student at a time. It's pretty lengthy. It's 30 to 40 minutes per student. And and it's not group administered. So it's in each individual student kind of back to back to back. And so that was the teacher was then doing that. So spending like a full day, a day and a half doing that. So then we actually have to pay subs to come in and cover the classroom. The benchmark assessment system was by far the most expensive, just looking at the resources needed to administer it. And then this was followed by the Star and Acadians. They were pretty close, just a couple of dollars off, which is really pretty minimal. And even though the Star is actually kind of longer for the computer adaptive assessment, since it's group administered, it's more efficient that way. And then Acadians or or CBM, since they are also kind of individually administered, or at least like the ORF is, but they are very, very brief. And so even though each individual student is going, you know, one after another, it doesn't take very long when you add all of that up. The other kind of benefit with STAR that we notice in terms of a resource piece is because it's computer adaptive, there's less need for training and coaching to ensure like standardized administration. So that helps kind of save some costs. The other piece though, that is a little bit more expensive about STAR is the resources needed for technology. But so many schools now already have that technology, so they might not feel like it's an added burden. And so they're going to be using it in their schools already. And so that kind of changes things a little bit too. So it might seem more expensive to a school that doesn't already have technology in place. But for schools that do, it's pretty affordable as well. That was what we found for the costs of the three, where the benchmark assessment system was over twice as expensive as both Star and Acadians, and they were pretty comparable to each other. That's a really important point because most teachers aren't going to be privy to how much this assessment costs in dollars and cents versus how much dollars and cents that that assessment costs. But they are going to be extremely privy to how much time is this going to take? How much of my economy of time is it going to take to administer this assessment, to score this assessment? And by pushing in one thing into the instructional day or into the preparation towards the instructional day, inherently other things are being pushed out. And so I appreciate this notion that acknowledges that it's, yes, there is a a literal dollar and cent cost to these that is completely worth looking at. But there's also the opportunity cost of time that 
by sinking time into one activity, I cannot do it in another. And so how to be the most efficient with that time so time can be optimized for teachers and for students. Let's take a look at the cost accuracy combined. So we're thinking of, are we capturing the kids that we want to be capturing to provide them support? And then money is a resource that is consumable. So let's provide an overview of how across Acadians, the STAR, and then the benchmark assessment system, summarize how their screening and costs were for each. Mm-hmm. When you combine those, the accuracy piece with the cost piece, so Acadians and just the ORF kind of by itself had the greatest kind of cost accuracy, meaning it was like the most efficient. But one of the things that is a potential shortcoming of that was that it doesn't give us great information. A lot of teachers kind of know already the students there that are at risk, and that's really all that's doing is just identifying students who are at risk. The second kind of most efficient cost accuracy ratio was the multivariate approach. But that was really useful because it's providing instructionally useful information and kind of grouping kids who have similar instructional needs. So it's giving teachers that additional piece of information. And that's what you're getting for that, that additional cost. But they're both pretty affordable. And then the benchmark assessment system was by far the least cost accurate approach. So it was the most expensive and it was also the least accurate. So when you couple those things, it didn't fare very well when we're thinking about kind of those limited resources and how we use them in schools. Do you have anything to add to that, Adria? That was beautiful. So we sort of have the Acadians and the star assessment in this one bucket that not only were they they cheaper, but they also were better indicators of which students need additional support. And then we had uh, the benchmark assessment system in this other bucket where it not only was more expensive, but it was also less accurate in identifying students who are at risk. I think that's really important to just consider for folks of there's these multiple different aspects to instruction, but we want assessments that can provide bang for our buck, that that can be able to provide us useful information, but also information that is not super duper expensive, or at least the most cost efficient as possible. We already mentioned some of the limitations, and I I just want to dig into that a little bit more because I I think it's important that this isn't necessarily like a copy and paste study, that in this context, in this school, these were the results that were found with the STAR and with the Acadians assessment, but that those exact cutoffs we mentioned might not be potable to a different context. What were some of the other limitations of the study of why it might pertain to this specific context, but not necessarily generalizable to other contexts? So it was conducted in just one school with um, a relatively small sample size, even though the sample size is comparable to many of the other studies out there that are looking at classification accuracy. And so Adria talked earlier about how the base rate of proficiency in a school is going to influence the cut score and the sensitivity and specificity. And so the results of the accuracy piece might not generalize to other schools who have different kind of student populations. But then the cost piece might not also generalize perfectly as well. Like I mentioned earlier, all schools and all kind of initiatives do have generally the same kind of like cost categories, but they might vary a little bit in how they actually play out in a school setting. One example would be this school had really well-trained, extremely skilled, extremely knowledgeable leaders who were able to help train and coach all of their teachers. And so that helped kind of 
reduce some of the costs associated with training. Other schools might not have that infrastructure already in place. They might need more training. This might be a new type of approach or initiative to them. And so that training cost might increase in some contexts. Other things, too, that might differ would be, again, that technology piece. So this school already had technology and was very kind of skilled in using it, very comfortable in using it. So a context where maybe that wasn't the case, it might be a little bit more expensive as well. The other thing, too, is that we only looked at three specific particular like vendors or types of assessments. So other schools, they might be using an adaptive assessment, but they might be using a a different one like NWEA or something like that. So we think future research should definitely look at the different kind of combinations of screeners that are out there. There's definitely an infinite probably number of combinations that schools could use. And then this school also used a specific administration approach. So they used a school-wide assessment team that they were like kind of contracting people like retired teachers and help like that to administer some of the assessments. And so other schools might actually have a different approach to administering their assessments than this one, which might also influence kind of the costs and the types of information that teachers are getting. I just wanted to add one last limitation of the study because you highlighted already, Jake, the most important one on the statistical end. But also this was only grade three that we looked at for this school. So I anticipate it'd be very different assessments for K through two. But our problem with K through two is we have to identify a different outcome metric than the state test, right? Because the state test is only administered in third grade. So it's easy to start with grade three. And uh, Courtney and I and many others are also interested in looking at this challenge for K one and two. So in acknowledging that there are limitations, we're also not saying that, well, everything we just talked about is completely useless in your context, right? There's the Goldilocks rule here of where It's not exactly copy and paste everything that was said, but it's also that none of it was useful either. So in thinking in your work with this specific school and finding the the cost analysis of this specific school, what would you recommend for other practitioners in other schools really looking to get the best bang for their buck with reading screeners? I think that that Goldilocks analogy is such a great way to put it. One thing that I would think about for practitioners is that our findings were pretty consistent with several other studies out there that have suggested that the benchmark assessment system isn't particularly accurate. So even if all the results of our study maybe didn't generalized to a specific school context, there's pretty much a lot of consistency regarding kind of the accuracy of these overarching kind of buckets of assessments. And so I think that even in any particular school, it would probably be similar in such that something like oral reading fluency is probably going to be pretty accurate and pretty efficient. Computer adaptive assessment is also going to be probably pretty accurate and pretty efficient. And then the combination of them is also going to increase your accuracy pretty well. And then the types of informal reading inventories are going to continue to be pretty expensive and and not quite as accurate. Standing upon what Courtney said about the usefulness of this for other schools and how it relates to other literature, I really wanted to dig deep and think about a lot of the other studies that have been conducted and answer some of our critical questions that schools want to know. Okay, what do I administer? (laughs) And I think that's really hard to navigate that. So we did a lot of work for some other papers and some other thinking around this about what would we do if we had an ideal world. And so 
I kind of mentioned a few of those things already, especially for third grade. I do think what we found there is really helpful, especially in thinking about a lot of dyslexia legislation that's going around the country. In that one group that we found, the kids who did well on the STAR, but not as well on oral reading fluency are likely one of these classic groups of kids who have similar patterns as kids with dyslexia. That's going to be a critical group we want to identify in third grade. I also think based on all the CBM data, kindergarten through second grade, CBM is really powerful in those two grade levels and would be what I would want to use in those grade levels. Also, I really understand teachers kind of mourning of the loss of the information they got from the benchmark assessment system. And luckily, there's some other measures out there that have decent accuracy, so much more improved reliability and validity, the things that are making these measures perform better. And I'm excited about them. So for example, A2I is developed by Carol Connor, who used to be at Florida Center for Reading Research when I was there as well, is incredible, has great accuracy, but also good utility in that it tells teachers how many minutes of instruction they need in both code-focused and meaning-focused instruction, and then how much they need in teacher-focused explicit instruction versus child-managed independent time. So I find that to be incredibly useful information-wise that could potentially replace some of the practices that teachers want to continue. There's also the cubed assessment, Trina Spencer and Doug Peterson, that really is very similar to an inventory in that the student reads and the teacher tracks what they read and then the teacher asks them questions, but it gives more fine-grained detail that is actionable, like about how students are doing in their syntax, their vocabulary, text structure, a couple of other things that have evidence-based instructional practices tied to them. And so I think there's excitement that there's lots of other things out there. And it shows that as a field of researchers and practitioners that we can evolve and that we can find assessments that are doing better by our students, by our taxpayer constituents, you know, all of the above. And I think there are a lot of interesting assessment things happening on the horizon that hopefully 5, 10, 15 years down the road can trickle their way down into practice so that we can be more efficient in supporting our students. Well, thank you for a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed having both of you on the show, Dr. Barrett and Dr. Truckenmiller. A final question for each of you. When you look out at the literacy landscape right now, what is currently filling your literacy cup? Yeah, I love that you end with this question, Jake. I think it's really interesting. When I moved to Michigan, I was so excited about the excitement of schools around this state and the work that they want to do and what they want to do to improve outcomes for students. Every person I run into is genuinely interested in using their time and talents in any way they can to improve outcomes for them. And I've been excited about what I'm going to call team science. So the talents and skills everybody's bringing to the collaboration between schools and research is really exciting to me. So the authors on this paper, your skills, Jake, and being able to communicate between research and practice, I think is so essential. Our team, I have several doctoral students who are doing the coolest things right now, and I am excited to see 
what all of that does, and they're partnering with schools directly, starting from problems of practice. So I think we're, we can do a lot for improving outcomes in literacy. One thing that inspires me is how dedicated and conscientious and committed our educators are. I was actually recently talking to a faculty member who moved to MSU from a different state, and and we were talking about the database decision-making practices, the data review practices that we've established in Michigan. And my new colleague was so impressed. They were like, oh my gosh, you guys really pull these data and really talk about them and really try to understand what they mean and really talking about things like sensitivity and specificity and having these really tough conversations in schools to to really inform what happens with children, you know, that day or the next day. I think that's just phenomenal and such so impressive. And to come so far in a relatively short period of time, I think is really amazing. And I hope that, you know, Adria and other my other colleagues that we get to keep kind of conducting research like this to help schools do just like a better job of knowing how to best support their students and using data to inform their practice. So it's really exciting. Dr. Courtney Barrett and Dr. Adria Truckenmiller, thank you for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Big thanks to Dr. Courtney Barrett and Dr. Adria Truckenmiller for joining us on this show. I had so many takeaways from this episode of my conversation with them. I just want to summarize it into a couple different ideas. The first idea I want to talk about is the power of a well-designed researcher-practitioner partnership. So here's the parties you have within this study. You have Dr. Barrett. Her expertise is school psychology, so systems view, assessment, cost, implementation. You have Dr. Truckenmiller. Her expertise is in reading assessment, multi-tiered systems of support. Uh, She's done a lot of work with assessment and different types of assessment. And then you have the school who is just asking, well, how do we get the best bang for our buck with our assessments? And the end result, I feel, is a win-win-win for all parties. The school now understands exactly in their context with their students which assessments or combination of assessments are best going to predict proficiency on the state end-of-year assessment. I'll also add that the CART analysis that we talked about in the episode was specifically for their context. So that analysis is actually more accurate than the vendor-recommended cutoffs. And I think that's a really powerful point here, is they know exactly which cutoffs are going to predict proficiency on the state end-of-year exam. The school also knows exactly how much these assessment costs. What is the time, money, people power that it takes to really implement this really well? And I look at what these researchers found over the course of the study, and I really feel that the administration at that building has a lot of really informative decisions they can make based off of the data. So for the researchers, Dr. Barrett and Dr. Truckenmiller, uh, they had an opportunity to use their expertise and to produce a research report that informs the field and adds to their expertise. So win for the researchers. I would also add that there was a doctoral student who participated in the project, uh, Lindy J. Johnson, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm sure that this researcher in training was able to gain really valuable experience on her route to becoming a skilled researcher. So win-win there. And then we had a great conversation on the podcast that I hope was very informative for you. So win and the field in general via the research report is informed as well. So win there. 
I really believe in the notion that researchers aren't conducting research on schools. It should be research with schools. And this is a powerful example of what that partnership can look like. My second main takeaway from the episode was time, accuracy, and money. These are three aspects of instruction I think about quite a bit. I'm super interested in both the analyses that were done in this episode of a CART analysis that helps evaluate the accuracy and cutoffs of, of the assessments that are being used, but also the economic analysis. What is the time, money, resources, people power that a school has to sink or a district has to sink into a curriculum or assessment in order to really implement it well? Now, I'm all for thinking in an abundance mindset, but the reality is inside the classroom, time is finite. If I spend time on one thing, by default, that means there's another thing that I cannot spend time on. And so to me, this sounds very much like my undergraduate economic theory course. There's trade-offs. If I spend money on X, I have less money to spend on Y. So how these pieces of instruction fit together is, is critical. When I was a classroom teacher, I would carpool uh, to and back from work every day with our speech-language pathologist. His name was Rod Bullock. He's had a truly excellent career over 25-plus years, probably going over 30 years now. And there was more than one occasion where he would say to me, weighing the pig doesn't make it fatter. And what he meant by this is that collecting assessment data in and of itself is not useful. And I would argue even one step further and say it can be detrimental. Now, if that sounds controversial, hang with me for a second. Let me, let me unpack that. The purpose of assessment data is to evaluate student strengths, student weaknesses, students' proficiency, and students' inadequate proficiency, to be able to understand a student's profile, a three-dimensional view of how the student is doing on their reading or writing trajectory. So my belief is that it is the response to that data that matters. It's what we as educators do in response to that data that really makes the difference. So if we're not taking action based on the data we've collected, not only is the pig not fatter, to, to borrow Rod Bullock's analogy, but we also just spent instructional time on that task, time that we can't get back. So if we pushed in this assessment task, it means we pushed out some instructional practice. So I'm of the opinion that assessment without analysis and response is really just student independent practice, which, which there is value in student independent practice, but I would argue not in the name of assessment. Assessment should be dialed in enough that it has a purpose, it has a point, it's accurate, and that as individual teachers, grade level teams, as part of the RTI MTSS process, we are analyzing the data and responding to it. That brings me to my last point of garbage in, garbage out. It's really imperative that school districts and schools know that the assessments that are being used are accurate, that they are measuring what they purport to measure. And that, like I mentioned in the episode, you know, school districts are dealing with a lot of different assessments that get threaded. They have a curriculum, and that curriculum is a specific vendor that has an assessment that comes with the uh, that comes with that curriculum. There is uh, assessments that are going to be required by the state. And then there might just be other assessments that the, the LEA wants to implement because they feel it's going to add to what they know about students. And so you get this 
I don't want to say hodgepodge, but you get these different pieces, different threads of assessment that schools and districts have to thread together in a way that's going to serve our teachers and students best. And, and that's not an easy thing to do, but it, it is truly important work because assessment is what we are purporting to be a reflection of reality of how our students are progressing. And so it is worth the time and effort to curate valid assessments, to curate accurate assessments, and to work with our educators to piece them together in a way that is going to make them fit so that teachers can respond to that data. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend or colleague. That's all I have for you today. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Until next time, let's work together to make reading and writing instruction even better.